Hi, I'm John. And I'm nervous. I brought my little clock. It's on standard time, so it's 1.16. I get to talk till 4. Oh, let's start this. One thing I know is that when I talk this long, if I'm not into recovery in 20 minutes, I don't make it. So <laughs> that way I can keep the past down. Uh, I always wonder how do I tell it. Uh, do I tell it the way I remember it, or uh, do I tell it the way it happened? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's much more dramatic the way I remember it. <laughs> but uh, I'll use the format, what I was like, what got me here, and what I am like now. Um, what was I like? Well, I was a mess. I'm very intelligent, I have a photographic memory, and I was completely fear-based, completely emotionally shut down. I did not know what I needed, what I wanted. I was basically a cipher, a blank page that accommodated whatever you needed, whatever was wanted. I didn't know how I got that way. That's what I was. And uh, the reason I say that about how I remember it, I remember my family as being very normal and very middle class and very comfortable. I knew my mother was an alcoholic, but I didn't remember any bad things happening. There's reasons for that. And... It was only after several years in Al-Anon that I began to understand what my story was. In my father's family, there were, he had alcoholic uncles and an older alcoholic brother. He himself was not an alcoholic. In my mother's family, of five sisters in that family, three married alcoholics, three became alcoholics. I was the fifth child in my family. I have four older sisters. And uh, there was another member of our family whose name was Elizabeth. She was the family maid, and she was a source of unconditional love. But without her, I don't know if I would have survived, and I certainly don't know how my sisters would have done this either. Elizabeth began working for my mother, for the family, when uh, my oldest sister, who is six, seven years older than I am, was one year old. So she had been with the family for seven, eight years, nine years, when she moved with her, her family to New Jersey. I was three. She came back when I was about five and a half, just before I started school. During the period when she was gone, my oldest sisters were in school, and I was physically, sexually abused by my alcoholic mother. These were memories I shut down. But that three-year-old boy made some decisions. He would not have anger, because when he had anger, he was physically beaten. He would not have emotions, because his mother used those to manipulate and control him. He knew that he could not trust the two people in the world that any child should trust, his parents. And he made a decision not to trust. And he also made another very strange connection, which I didn't understand until, well, about three or four years ago. Somehow in that child's brain, love was made to equal abuse. And that, 
those things triggered a lot of other things. But that was my formative years. When I went to school, I loved it because I was out of the house. I was not with my mother. Elizabeth came back and everything changed. The abuse stopped. That type of abuse stopped. Um, my father was a very controlling man. He was going to control his wife's alcoholism. He couldn't. So he proceeded to control the town, the children, and everyone else. Um, <clears throat> I learned as a small child not to ask for anything. The first answer was always no. And then, if you were willing to fight for 20 to 30 minutes and prove why you needed or wanted that, you might be allowed to have it. And I watched this process continuously with my oldest sisters. And I made the decision at a very young age, I did not want anything. As a child growing up in that home, I spent as much time as possible outside of that house. And that meant I would be playing football or whatever else the few children in the town were doing to just be out of the house. During the summers, that wasn't a problem because I, like most farm children, though we lived in town, spent every summer in the tobacco fields in North Carolina. And from age 6 until 18, I spent every summer in the field. Um, and that was good because I was out of the house. I was my mother's emotional support. That was my job. My father was completely emotionally shut down. He expressed two emotions, humor and anger. And the primary way in which he expressed anger was to get mad, say something, and then walk out of the house. That was the example of how one dealt with anger I had. My mother, the most succinct way to describe her way of behavior was a manipulative victim, martyr, bitch. <laughs> That's how she functioned. If being a victim didn't work, she became, moved it to the next level of being a martyr. And if that didn't work, she got really manipulative and finally could be quite cruel. Um, sarcasm was the rule in my family. And all of this happened in a picture-perfect environment in the sense that there was very, very seldom a raised voice in my home. There was very, very seldom any form of any form of emotion at all, it was very quiet. And there was no... The discipline that existed in my home was a discipline of assumption. You didn't do because... And the because was never expressed. Because you didn't do. I was totally fear-based by the time I was eight years old. I did not disbehave period. I didn't know why. It was simply something that I did not do. It was not even in the range of possibility. By the time I was 14, my oldest sisters had graduated from the local school and had been valedictorian and then proceeded to get into reasonably good colleges and have to have tutors to pass basic classes. My parents figured out this local school was not a good school. <laughs> My youngest sister and I were sent off to prep school. So I ended up in Middle Tennessee in a very good prep school in a town that was smaller than the one I grew up in. The one I grew up in had about 250 people. <laughs> uh, and I really enjoyed that because, one, I was away from home. Two, I could indulge in my favorite addiction at that time, which was reading. And that was highly encouraged in that environment. I used fantasy, fantasy to escape. And reading was a way of legitimate fantasy in my family. And, I mean, I read Gone with the Wind in eighth grade. You know, I mean, I read constantly. And I was the one activity in my family that would allow you to disappear and be gone for hours. 
and nobody would care. You know, I could literally go into the living room, sit down with a book, and read for hours, and would be out of the insanity. And the insanity in my family was never overt. It was always subtle. It was always underhanded. It was always just, you know, slightly off-center. My mother's primary way of teaching one child was to discuss another child in front of them. You, your sister does. That's 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 that. And of course, you know, it's obvious that she's talking about you instead. And that was. And it's really funny because we never realized until later when we got older and actually talked about it that each of us thought another was the best. And uh, to me and my youngest sister, the oldest sister was the best. To my oldest sisters, I was the best. I was the only boy. It's very difficult to disappear when you're only boy in a house full of women. <laughs> Another aspect of the structure in my family, my mother designed her home, and it was a really good design. Two-story brick home. There were four bedrooms and a bathroom upstairs. Each of my sisters had a bedroom. There were two bedrooms, bathroom downstairs, and my bedroom was my mother's sewing room. And that's how I lived my entire life, living in that home. I was her emotional support, her surrogate husband in many ways. Um... I didn't know it wasn't normal for a nine-year-old to sit gossiping with his mother about the activities of the town. I didn't know a lot of things that went on in my, with my relationship with my mother that were not normal. The first time I came home from prep school, I had spent three months away from home. I came home to my mother's house, and I walked for about 15 or 20 minutes through that house trying to find some place to sit down where I felt comfortable. And finally I just sat down. And I did not know why I felt that way. But every time I went home, from the age of 14 on, that's how I felt. That summer, age 14, when I came home for the summer, I realized that my connection with my mother was not healthy that there was something wrong there. I was in puberty, growing up, things were changing for me, and that relationship had to change, and I didn't know why and I didn't know how. Early that summer, she was drunk, and the way my mother drank, you know, she'd start dinner, and she'd go in the pantry, and she'd come out of the pantry and do something else, and she'd go back in the pantry, and then she'd go back, you know, and depending on how many times she went into the pantry, you know, dinner was either undercooked, overcooked, burnt, so once she set fire to the house. Uh, and after dinner, depending on how drunk she was, my father would either sit down and watch television or he would walk out of the house. And later, looking back on it, I wonder to myself how the man could walk out and leave five children with a drunk. But that was what he did because he couldn't deal with it. What she had been drinking was telling me all about one of my sisters and how she wasn't living her life right. <clears throat> and I made a comment that she was grown and out of college. She, you know, it was her life. And my mother responded very angrily. I live my life through my children. Their life is my life. And I looked at her and something snapped. And I said, you cannot live your life through me. I cannot live the life you want me to live. I have to live my own life. One of the first slogans I heard when I walked into an ACA meeting, Al-Anon ACA meeting, so people don't get confused there. And it's not a, it's, it's not a published Cal slogan, was, if you can't detach with love, detach with an axe. <laughs> and, and at age 14, I did that without knowing what I was doing. I severed the tie with my mother in a very cut, cutting way because I had to. I was maturing as a man, and I needed something else. And I very consciously, that summer, spent time 
focusing and identifying with my father, trying to build that relationship. It wasn't easy. <laughs> uh, at that age, I was mature enough to be out working on the farms as opposed to simply working in the tobacco fields. And this is a bit of how my father operates. He took me down to the office lot, put me on the tractor, spent 15 minutes showing me how the tractor worked, and then I was out in the field. Supposedly an experienced tractor hand plowing the fields or putting out whatever poison had to be put out, the rest of it. They did that to me once, put me on a... They had the, the farms that they farmed were scattered all over the county, so they put the tractor on a trailer and me in the truck with the man who could drive, <laughs> take me out to the field and, you know, dump the tractor off, put me on it and say, plow the field. Well, it had been raining, and the instruction was, plow the field if it isn't too wet. Now, these men have 30 years farming experience, and I'm supposed to know whether to plow this field if it's too wet or not. So I went out in the field, plowing the field, and of course the uh, plow started sinking in the mud, <laughs> and then the wheels started kind of going under, and I kind of stopped in the middle of the field going, this, I think this is too wet. <laughs> But there wasn't anybody there for me to ask. And I was supposed to plow the field. So I made it through that row, and I came back the other way. And in the same kind of spot, and it started doing the same thing. And I just lifted the plow up that time and went on and got past that wet spot. And then, you know, here's this spot in the middle of the field that isn't plowed. And it's like, well, you know, I'm supposed to plow this field. So I went back down the last row and I got the tractor stuck because it was too wet to plow and I was literally moving into the wet section and uh, oh a couple of hours later they came by to check on me <laughs> and I said the tractor and I said well why'd you get it stuck and I said well <laughs> you told me to plow the field it's too wet well it took them two days to get that tractor out of that field <laughs> They couldn't get the trucks into the field because the field was too wet to plow, to pull the tractor out. They didn't do that to me again because they really did learn that if they gave me a task, I would do the task, whether it really was the right thing to do or not. Because in a very real sense, I had been taught not to take any responsibility. And that's what I did. It became almost a life decision, not completely. After the second summer, I went home. The first summer, my youngest sister was home with me. So the two of us were able to kind of give each other support. Well, after one summer, she didn't come back. My oldest sisters, of course, never came back. Uh, occasional visits, but they did not come back to stay. So my, summer of my sophomore year, I was alone in that house with my parents. And after about two weeks of that, I called one of my sisters who was living in uh, Chapel Hill at the time. And I said, I can't stand this. You either come and get me or you come and stay every weekend. Somebody comes home or somebody comes and gets me. And they did for that entire summer. Somebody came home every weekend, and they rotated. But they did it because they knew what living in that house was like. Uh, my cousins, my mother's sister, I loved going to their house. We were really close the whole time. And I loved going to their house because they had screaming fights. <laughs> the father in that family was the alcoholic. And... They had screaming fights, and it was so exciting, <laughs> you know. And uh, our two families would always go to the beach for at least a week during the summer, the beaches in North Carolina, and, and it was wonderful. Um, so we exchanged, you know, we, we visited, and it was, it was a really close, relation, wonderful relationship. And uh, shortly after I got into college, my aunt from that family got into Al-Anon that was 69 or maybe 71 
1971 that she got into, into Al-Anon. And she suggested to me that perhaps my mother was an alcoholic, and I agreed with her. My mother was an alcoholic. And she suggested perhaps I should go to Al-Anon. I said, no, I don't think so. It's not my problem. I should have listened. I'd have 22 years now. <laughs> but I didn't. No, it really wasn't my problem. I had, after going to prep school, I had gotten into, uh, went to college in a major university in New York City, Columbia University, which happened to be the year of the Cambodia strike invasion. So this poor southern boy who had never been to a big city was at this university where they closed the university down. And something happened. I started to have emotions. And now as I watch demonstrations happening, for whatever reason, I really can plug right into that ACA anger because that's what came up for me was the ACA anger. Of course, it was directed at Nixon and whoever was bombing who, but that's what it was. And I came home with that, and my father just said, you should never allow your emotions to become involved. And my mother looked at me and said, well, when you have strong feelings, you should just smoke a cigarette. <laughs> I learned to smoke that summer. <laughs> and that's one of the things that I'm, is on my sixth step right now is smoking. Um, but it was absolutely true. So then I went transferred to the University of North Carolina where I majored in drama. <laughs> I was going to be an actor, you see, and I didn't have any emotions, but I thought I could fake it. <laughs> and I graduated and went to Washington, D.C., where I was working in little theater. And I became involved with a small theater there with an acting school, and I was studying. And when I say I became involved, it's, it's not quite the way it happened. I mean, for me, it wasn't okay to just participate in classes. I mean, I was taking classes. I was the publicity director. I was managing several of the smaller shows. I moved into the building. <laughs> I was living that completely. Um, and... That's how I got my identity, by whatever I was doing, because I had no identity. And I knew that there was something really wrong with me. There was something basically wrong with me. Other people knew how to do things that I could not do and I did not know how to do. Well... I met this man on the street one day in the rain. We were both under umbrellas, and he was cute, and I thought, hmm. Well, the next time it rained, I saw him again. And I thought, well, that's nice. So we exchanged phone numbers, but neither one of us called. And the next, that Friday, I went to one of the gay bars in D.C., and there he was. And that bar is pretty dead, and I said, I'm going to go somewhere. He said, no, 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 stay here. And I said, I know, I'm going to go. And he said, well, come back. Well, I did. We dated a few times, and then we merged. <laughs> I didn't have any boundaries, and he didn't either, but he was a lot of fun. And he could make a ha party happen in a second. And I didn't make the connection, but there were always drugs and alcohol at his parties. His parties would happen at any bar he wanted it to happen. Or, you know. We moved into a house together with two friends, and it was a pretty wild existence. Lots of drugs, lots of alcohol, lots of rages, lots of fights. And I wasn't used to that, but it was exciting. You know, it was more than I'd had. And uh, after a while, he fought with the roommates to the extent they left. Then we got in a house just by ourselves, and I thought, well, this will be nice and calm and quiet. <laughs> no, and after a while, I really did sink in that he was an addict and an alcoholic, and he admitted that that was true. 
and I suggested that perhaps he should use the drugs less and lean on me more. <laughs> I mean, I actually said that, you know. <laughs> he agreed to try. And uh, he decided it wouldn't work in D.C., so we moved to San Francisco. And that was really nice. And at this time, my father was dying of cancer. And I could not participate in my father's death in the sense that I wanted to, because every time I went home and tried to express my support and caring for him, my mother got between us. My job was to provide her with her emotional needs. It was not acceptable for me to have that kind of relationship with my father. We moved out here, we got into the house, and I had to go back for his death. And my relationship with him was clean, and I felt comfortable with that. And I spent time with my mother preparing things for the will and you know all of that sort of thing. And I came home, and my lover had found a dealer that delivered. <laughs> and it was like, okay, we were going to leave that in D.C. So got rid of that guy, and our relationship continued. Um, what changed is that rather than his using being daily, it became a binge type of thing. And what changed for me is that I became totally isolated. I didn't have anyone in San Francisco. I had the house, the dog, and my lover, and my job. And I was comfortable because that was what I had known for my entire childhood. And that continued. He had friends, basically using friends, but I was all virtually completely isolated. And I, finally I met a guy at work I liked, and he had a lover, and so the four of us started to do things. And one of them said, you know, have you thought about your friends drinking? And I said, well, you know, he drinks. And, he goes, and then he said that he was an ACA. And I said, what's that? And he said, an adult child of an alcoholic. And I said, well, so am I. So what? <laughs> And he gave me these books to read, not conference to prove. One of them was about, was about that thin, and I could not read them. I mean, I can sit down and read a novel like that, and I could not read these. They put me to sleep. I couldn't get through one page, and I was asleep. And I didn't understand that. So I put them down, and we planned a vacation to St. Croix. And I went, we went to St. Croix. We were there for 14 days, and I took the book. And I was sitting on the beach reading those books, and then every night my lover turned the beach cottage into a bar disco, and then I spent the day on the beach reading the books. And <laughs> My lover was wasted eight out of 14 days that vacation. And when we came back, I had read the books, and I looked for a counselor. And I asked somebody at work, and he told me about this guy, and I called him, and, and the guy said, oh, yeah, you know, and I work in Oakland. I said, I don't cross bridges. <laughs> And so he recommended someone in the city. <laughs> so I went to see her, and it took her about 10 minutes to open me up to 37 years of rage. And I was sitting there just like, what do I do? And she said, well, I do ACA groups, and my next one starts in September. I said, this is April. <laughs> And she said, well, you can come and pay me $70 an hour, or you can go to Al-Anon and get it free. I didn't know it, but I'd walked into the office of a 12-step therapist. So I said, I'll go to Al-Anon, and I want to take your group in September. <laughs> that was over seven years ago. My first meeting was an ACA Al-Anon meeting. It was a beginner's meeting. That's why I went. It said Beginners. It was Belcher Street meeting, for those of you who know San Francisco. 
the beginners meeting had about 12 people there, and a woman sat and shared, and I felt comfortable and I felt at home. I couldn't open my mouth, but I felt comfortable and I felt at home. And I decided I would stay for the real meeting, which was after that, and 150 people walked in. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, <laughs> and I felt comfortable and I felt safe. And I felt like I belonged. And I was amazed. Tuesday, I didn't go out. Wednesday, there was a meeting on campus. And since I worked on campus, I work for a major dysfunctional university in the city. <laughs> and since I worked there, it was just down the hall, basically. So I went to that meeting. And I've heard people introduce home meetings tonight. And I, the Wednesday, Parnassus meeting is my home meeting. I've been going to that meeting every time I'm in town for the past seven years, and it's a wonderful meeting. And then Thursday night, I went to the gay men's meeting, and that was the first time I was able to open my mouth. And I basically said, I'm living with an alcoholic in an alcoholic relationship, and I'm pretty desperate. And someone came up and talked to me after the meeting, and I felt comfortable and I felt safe. Then I went to the Friday night Belcher Street meeting, and then I went to the Saturday night Belcher Street meeting. And on Sunday, my lover asked me what I was doing. <laughs> and I said, I read these books, and I'm sick. I'm, I'm really sick. And I hear people talk about coming to Alnon to take help the alcoholic, and I didn't, because I knew I had a problem. He didn't think he had a problem. But I knew that if I was putting up with this, and I grew up in it, and I felt comfortable in it, I had a problem. So I started going to meetings for that reason. I had a problem. Well, he had a problem with me going to meetings at first. <laughs> and so I volunteered for service. I probably within the third week was a literature person in one meeting, and coffee person in another meeting. And within a month, I was probably a literature person in two meetings. <laughs> within four months, I was being a secretary for a meeting. You know, I volunteered for service because when my lover said, do you have to go to that meeting today? And I was like, well, I'm the literature person. I have to be there. <laughs> I, at that point, I could not confront anybody or anything. So here I was going to six meetings a week. I did that for two years. Um, I needed it. And my lover's disease progressed. And uh, after a couple of months, he said, are you going to keep going to these meetings? And I said, yes, why? He said, well, people keep telling me if somebody gets into recovery and the other one don't, you break up. And I said, I'm not going anywhere. I said, we have nine years in this relationship. I said, I'm not going anywhere. I'm too sick. If, I mean, if I walk out of this relationship, I would walk right into something just as bad or worse. And I didn't know this, but he was talking to people in recovery. And I got to recovery in April. In July, he got clean. In August, he got sober. One of the slogans that I took to heart from the very beginning was, there but for the grace of God go I. In my family, my generation of my family, there are no alcoholics. In my aunt's, my generation of my aunt's family, out of three, out of four children, three are alcoholics. It is a flip of the coin which side of this disease we get, I believe. Some of us has both. <laughs> uh, the other slogan that I took to heart was, never do for someone what they can do for themselves. That gave me permission to tell my lover when he was hung over on the couch, no, I will not walk half a block to get you ice cream. You can do that yourself. 
And the third one, which was probably the most important for me, was mind your own business and know what your business is to mind. <laughs> I could do the first part. I was learning. I was learning what mind your own business meant. I wasn't supposed to call in sick for him. I wasn't supposed to cover for him. And I was learning how to do that. And then once he got into recovery, it was none of my business. And I learned to bite my tongue. I walked up the stairs from the basement one day, and he said, you know, it's not going to work if I try to do this for you. And I went... <laughs> <laughs> Just let that one go. <laughs> but, of course, I had four months more than he. I knew how he was supposed to do it. <laughs> but I trusted the slogans. I couldn't handle the steps at that point. But I trusted the slogans. And the slogan said, mind your own business. And it also said, and know what your business is to mind. And I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea what that meant. But something weird started to happen to me at work. I started to notice that I was trying to co a major dysfunctional university in the city. <laughs> and I started to stop doing that. And my work got better. How strange. And I started reading all the literature, and I couldn't get a sponsor. I could not ask someone to be my sponsor. I could not ask for help. One of the things I had learned in my family was if you asked for help, you got humiliated. I could not ask for help. It took me a year before I could finally get a sponsor. And I decided after a year I ought to do my fourth step. And I was ready, and so I got a sponsor, and he was wonderful. And he knew I wasn't ready to do my fourth step. <laughs> so he was very gentle with me. And about six months after he had worked me through the first three steps, I started my fourth step, and I couldn't do it. I have a real issue with writing. And finally I figured out why. Because I had absolutely no privacy in childhood. I had no place where if I had written a note to myself that I could have put it where it would not have been seen. So I got together with a woman for the win from the Wednesday group, and we agreed to do the blueprint. One chapter a week, we were going to meet Monday afternoon and show what we had written. Well, we actually did it. There were weeks we couldn't write anything, and we would meet and show that we didn't write anything. <laughs> but we, we made it. And then I did my fifth step, and I made an, an amazing discovery that in spite of everything that I had believed from my family, I was not a bad person. I had never done anything really cruel or, or harmful to anyone. The worst I had done was duplicate my parents' pattern in my relationship. I manipulated my lover with money all the time. I use sex, anything at all, as a manipulative tool. Sarcasm, all of it. I knew how to wreck his high. Like that. And in that sense, I was cruel. To consciously and deliberately ruin his high. <laughs> and yet, aspects of that were absolutely survival for me. I... Uh, discovered that I had never really done anything to damage people. The biggest sins of all of my relationships were the sins of omission. Never being truly honest about what I felt. Never being truly honest about what I needed or what I wanted. Most of the time, I didn't have a clue. I was so completely shut down. So at the end of the second year, the one part of my program that was really lacking was a relationship with my higher power. And my sponsor suggested meditation. We talked about it. And I began to meditate. 
And then he and I decided well, it would be a good idea if we started a meditation meeting. And we talked about it. We talked to friends about it. And we did. We started a meditation meeting on Saturday morning. But we never listed it. Because if you had 50 people in a meditation meeting, it just wouldn't work. So we named it the Saturday Morning Gay Men's Meditation Co-Sponsorship Group. <laughs> I've been doing that meeting for five years now. The membership has changed, but it remains a real core part of my program. And during that summer, I developed a relationship with my higher power. And I had a hard time with the whole white light concept and, you know, crosses don't work for me and, you know, just lots of things. So I asked for an image, an image from my higher power that I could relate to. And one day in my meditation, I was given an image that I really related to. It was this naked man. <laughs> and I looked at that and I went, whoa. And then the face came into focus. And those eyes knew everything about me and loved me. And from then on, that was how my meditation started, just focusing on those eyes. And things started to happen. I was given a new supervisor. The first time in my life I had ever had a male supervisor, and he was gay. And I had nothing to do with it, and I didn't know it was happening. And other things happened. One of my sisters started going to meetings. I didn't have anything to do with it. It's like things started to happen that were really good. And then about, it was November. I hadn't gone back to my therapist for over a year, so I made a checkup appointment. And I invited my aunt to uh, come to the Yosemite conference. And we went to the Yosemite conference. We got up there Thursday night. I was feeling feverish. I went to bed. Friday morning I got up, went registered for the conference, went back, went back to bed. And at 1 o'clock I woke up with the first of my incest memories. It took me two and a half years in Al-Anon and over four months of daily meditation and building a relationship with my higher power before I was ready for that memory. I got up, I went to the conference, <laughs> went to the first big meeting, and I felt like there was, my world had just fallen apart, and everything had twisted and turned and changed. And there was Mary A.T. speaking. <laughs> and suddenly I was home, and I felt comfortable, and I knew I would survive. And everything changed. I understand now, stood from then, why? The first thing that happened for me whenever I tried to do something was fear. Fear was an absolute basis of my life because of that abuse. One of the most powerful memories I had was the inside of the cabinets of my mother's house. All of the places a small child could hide. And I realized that that child tried to protect himself. And he couldn't. And I got really angry at my higher power because I didn't want that. I mean, I had a normal alcoholic background. <laughs> this was not an issue I wanted. But I got it. And it became clear to me that that particular issue had shaped major parts of my life. And I got to start working through all of them. And my relationship certainly made a big difference. I couldn't let anybody touch me for a long time. And my lover didn't understand that, and it took a while to work through it. And at the end of about a year, and I had done a lot of work on this issue, another fourth step, the whole bit, I did something that came out of that issue I triggered a situation that put me into the complete victim-martyr role and pushed him into rage. 
I, he wasn't conscious necessarily, but I triggered that situation. And out of his rage, I got what I needed to go to a place of total victimhood, complete martyrdom. And I needed to go there to understand something. Victimhood is very powerful. When you are in a space of total pain, black depression, there is nothing anybody outside of you can do to you, about you, for you. You have made the choice to be in that space. And it is a space of power because nothing outside of you can hurt you. You're already in total pain. And I realized that that was a familiar place to me. And I never remembered going there before. But it was very familiar. And I made the decision I would never go back there. And I got to work my way out of that. And I got to be present for my lover's rage and understand that that was his process. And I had triggered it. And I made the conscious decision that I wasn't going to do that again either. <laughs> and I began seriously to work through the upper level steps, the six, sevens, and eights, because there, I realized that I had a lot of baggage that I was carrying. I was carrying my mother's shame. She gave that to me as a small child to carry for her, and I was still carrying it, and she was dead. And I got to give that back to her. I still had my own fear, and everything I did started with fear. I had to sue a contractor. And I made a phone call to the contractor's union or whatever they are. and They were very helpful, and they wanted to help me. And I couldn't call them back because of my fear. And the way it worked for me is I would be afraid, and if I didn't deal with the fear, I went straight to paralysis. Not passivity, mind you, paralysis. And the only way that I could get out of the paralysis was to honor the fear. So I got to develop a process okay, you're going to make a phone call that you don't want to make. What is the first thing that is going to happen? You are going to be afraid. Face it. <laughs> Pray about it. Then pick up the phone. And I had to do that for everything for a long time. That process. First it's fear. You pray through it. Then you move on. And in the sixth step, you pray for willingness to let go of these defects. Well, I was doing that around fear for a long time. One of the gifts of this program, I said I volunteered for service early. Well, one of the gifts of this program is that there are lots of different ways to do service, and there are lots of different gifts of service. When I got my incest memories, I had just been elected a GR, and... I got to go to the district meetings where people were arguing about the traditions or whatever issue was in their face, and they were being loud and boisterous and having lots of feelings, and I got to sit there in total terror, feeling desperate, and stay in the room. I got to grow through my own fear and my own desperation in the District 12 business meetings. After a couple of years of that, I became the alternate DR. <laughs> and I figured that's a way to sit in the meeting and have no responsibility and a title. <clears throat> and, that was, and that was good for me because it meant I got to be in front and lead the meeting because that's how our DR wanted it. But I didn't have any responsibility and uh, I got to be present and in front. And for an incest survivor and for someone who wanted to be the invisible child, that's not an easy thing to do. Not in reality. It's easy to do it as a facade, but not and be real. And I had learned to be real. And one thing about my recovery, it's very slow. I don't have big, ah, 
I'm fixed moments. <laughs> it's like, oh, wait a minute. I think I did that differently. <laughs> it's, oh, that happened sometime back there. I don't know when something changed, but it did. And that's how my growth occurs. The work never stops, but the growth kind of sneaks up on me, and it's like, oh, that happened. And that's how, what, that's one of the reasons I really like doing service is because when I'm doing service, something changes and I see it. Because, oh, I did that differently, and it worked. And I'm with people who have been through that same process, and they can, I get the feedback that, oh, yeah, something changed, and it was good. Well, one of the, uh, issues I was praying about was my fear and it didn't go away. I still kept it and I got to, it was time for elections in District 12 so I was, someone asked me to stand for district representative and the current district representative was standing as well and I thought, oh, but I want her to be elected. And they said, well, we ought to have at least a choice. So I put my name in and I went on vacation. <laughs> I got back from vacation and was a message on my tape machine saying, oh, congratulations, you got elected. <laughs> oh, so I became DR, and then I got to have the responsibility, too, and that was really frightening because one of the things I always ran from was responsibility. And I was learning to have that in my relationship, to take responsibility for my actions, to take responsibility for the things I did that triggered problems. And my lover was working his program and working a good program and growing. And he still got annoyed with me for doing all of these meetings. And now I had to go to Northern Committee meetings. And, you know, it's like Northern California Committee meetings. They're like, why do you have to do that, you know? But I got to go to Northern Com California committee meetings where people were arguing about the traditions <laughs> and having feelings. And, <clears throat> and I wasn't afraid there. But at first I didn't particularly want to talk about it. I mean, you know, say anything either. I just figured I'd let them argue about it. Uh, now I'm getting to where I'm willing to speak up, too. And then my lover started talking about his company was going to downsize, reorganize, whatever. And the possibility is that he might not have a job or he might have to move. I'm not moving out of San Francisco. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, his job moved to Irvine. And so he made the decision, and we certainly talked about it. It wasn't arbitrary in any sense that he would go with the job because at that point, the job market was pretty bad. And so he moved to Irvine. So after 15 years, my best excuse left. I didn't have anybody in that house to blame for me not having what I wanted when I wanted it. And I was pissed. <laughs> and I was angry he left. I mean, he abandoned me. But of course, I went back to my old pattern of shutting it down and not even knowing that's what I was feeling because the old patterns are always much easier than the new ones. And after about three months, I did it again. We were talking on the telephone, and I pushed him to rage. I triggered violent rage. And I knew what I was doing, I knew how I was doing it, and I couldn't stop it, and I didn't know why. Well, I went to my therapist, I certainly went to meetings, and I got it. That's when I found out about that little wiring that went on in that three-year-old's head, love equals abuse. He left me, he didn't love me, but if I could make him abuse me, I knew he loved me. So I made him abuse me. And that realization was really painful.
because it really meant that much of my understanding of what love is is a lie. And I had I have to unwire that wire. I have to separate that connection. The slogan awareness, acceptance and action has been a slogan for me. The awareness is always that moment that just pops in, oh. And the work for me is always the acceptance. And it's work for me to know that if I push someone too far to the point where they abuse me, it's because I want that to happen. That somehow that means I'm getting what I want. I didn't want to believe that. I didn't want to know that. But the one thing I do know about coming back and keeping coming to this program is that I continue to grow. I continue to get the lessons that I need, and I continue to grow. So I continued to pray about fear, but now I was praying about this other thing, too. And while I was working on this other thing, the abuse issues, and how, how can I be present in a relationship and be loving and not trigger abuse and not plug my own self into that abuse, my fear was lifted. And I found out about it when the District 12 office building was sold and the district had to move and the office worker called and said, he wants more money and we have to move. And, I, and, I, and I'm going, well, did he give you anything in writing? And he said, no. And I said, okay, I'll call him. <laughs> and I called him and I had a business-like conversation with him and made all the arrangements we needed. And then I hung on the phone and went, oh, wait a minute, I wasn't afraid. <laughs> and I turned around and I looked back and I thought about, you know, oh, some... My fear was lifted, and I didn't have anything to do with it, and I don't even know when it happened. It's just when I was doing service, suddenly I realized it was gone. And that is, for me, the way my recovery works and the way the gift of this program works, and it's certainly how my higher power works. He likes to do things that I have no idea are going to happen. <laughs> it just kind of hit me upside the head and go, wham, here. <laughs> Good or bad, it's... <laughs> the same difference and now I didn't have any fear and my lover's out of the house and I still wasn't doing what I wanted or getting what I wanted and I didn't know why so then the next defect gets to come up and it is passivity for me being absolutely still in my alcoholic home was Sitting in one spot, even if you were reading for four hours or watching television for four hours, whatever it was, if you were in one spot and not moving, you were safe. You, moving targets were what got damaged. And I finally got it, that it's not because my lover did what, but uh, it had nothing to do with him. He isn't here. He's in Irvine. It's just me sitting in that house, and I'm still not doing my best excuse moved. <laughs> it was just me, and I didn't have any more excuses, and I was face-to-face -face with my own passivity, my own pattern of not doing. There was nothing in my way. There is nothing in my way. It is simply that childhood survival tactic still hanging on. And now the fear had been gone. It's like get off the dime. Well, it doesn't work that way for me. First you get the awareness. Now you get have to do the work. Acceptance. Passivity is a pattern of my life, and it is a pattern of my life because it was safe. It provided safety. It provided protection. And I don't need it anymore. That doesn't mean it just walks out the door. <laughs> My recovery is slow. <laughs> what it means is I get to do a lot of prayer and a lot of work around this new issue. And probably about the time I get to acceptance, one of the other ones will disappear, I hope. <laughs> but that's what my process is. And it is slow. And I don't have big aha moments. I wish I did.
they're so dramatic and fun, and it's just not in my cards. But I do have a process. People talk about program and process. A program is a plan. It's what you're going to do. A process is how you do it. The Al-Anon 12 Steps, 12 Traditions, and 12 Concepts are my program. My process is prayer and meditation, meetings, sponsorship. I don't use the phone. In my family, the phone was a business phone. You did not use it for personal reasons, period. I can't get rid of that lesson. <laughs> I can take phone calls. I don't have a problem taking a phone call, but dialing it's another issue. Service. I haven't talked about sponsorship beyond my first sponsor, and I have learned an enormous amount about myself by being a sponsor. My first sponsee was a dual member, and he had a lot of experience in the other program, and he went out because of his ACA issues. And then he went back to the other program, and when those issues came back up, he came to Al-Anon. And I became, he asked me to be a sponsor, and we worked for a couple of years, and it felt really good, and I learned a lot from him. But after a couple of years, he began to get sick, and... He didn't know what was wrong. He went to the hospital, and they didn't know what was wrong, and they kept asking me if he was HIV positive. It took them six months to find out that he had leukemia, uh, lymphoma, because they kept checking for HIV. He didn't have HIV. He had lymphoma. And in a very real sense, I made an amends to my father by being present, for his process. And his mother was an issue in that. And I was able to be present in his process and the voice of sanity for him when he needed it. The last the last time he got sick, I went to called him and he sounded confused and I went over to his house and he was confused. And I said, we're taking your temperature. If it's more than 104, you're going to the hospital. And he didn't want to go. And his temperature was more than 104. So he went to the hospital. And he didn't come out of the hospital. And that was really difficult, and it was really hard. But I had my meetings to walk me through it so that I could be present for him. I've had another sponsee who taught me an awful lot. He moved back to the East Coast. I now have three, and they teach me an awful lot. And I, of course, have a sponsor who also teaches me a lot. <laughs> but that, rela those, that, that relationship, that one-on-one -on -one relationship within the framework of the program, focused on the steps, the traditions, on what the issue of the moment is, It's what really teaches me what a healthy relationship is. It has clear boundaries. It's not acceptable for my sponsees to just show up or call me at any point. If they're in crisis, that's different. But barring crisis situation, there are limits. I go to bed at 9.30. I get up at 5. You can call me at 6.30 at work if you want to. But, you know, there are limits. I get to set limits in a relationship and be clear and be healthy. And they understand what it means. <laughs> so it's mutual. And that is, I mean, the gifts of this program are so amazing. And perhaps one of the, I'm certainly the greatest gift is the whole spirituality. I mean, I have a spiritual life now. I certainly did not when I came here. And that spiritual life is supported 
by the people in these rooms. They know what I'm talking about. You know. And you support me in that. And it doesn't matter whether that that my spirituality has anything whatsoever to do with what your spirituality is and the way we practice it. But we know it is the same. It is the same journey. It is the same seeking. I was just thinking about the meditation meeting. I missed it this morning because I'm here. You know, I tried very hard not to miss that meeting. Six men who choose to meet Saturday morning, meditate, and then share. That's a real gift, and it's the kind of thing that I think you can only find here. (coughs) The last thing that I'm going to say, and it has to do with service, I don't believe that working the steps in a closet is any good. If you don't take that growth, that development into the world, what's the point? For me, service is how I learn to take the growth I have personally into the world because the personal growth goes into the service. The service is a safe world. From that safe world, I can walk out into the real world with those new skills, that new growth. And I thank all of you because you give me that opportunity. And you give me that opportunity in a way that I can't abuse because you won't let me do everything. (laughs) You'll just let me do one thing at a time. And that's a lesson I had to have. And that's, I don't know, service for me is how I take my program into the world. It's how I learn how to take personal growth into the world. So, thank you. Thank you.